Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me on Facebook throughout the week uh, at Evidence-Based Radio. And you can also listen to this and other episodes as podcasts on iTunes, Stitchers, and where other, wherever fine podcasts are purveyed. Um, and so I'm also... Uh, trying to roll out a new feature. So I am going to be listing at the top of the hour, uh, for those of you listening in real time, a quick overview of lectures and other things that might be of interest to the science-mindedly inclined. And um, so yeah, so I'll be looking in the five college area. And so this week, or in the coming week, I should say, or two, uh, at Smith College on Tuesday the 30th at 5 p.m. Uh, in Seeley Hall 106, Virginia Hyson, professor of biological sciences, will give a lecture entitled Misconceptions About Conception and Other Fallacies, Historical Bias in Reproductive Biology. So that sounds pretty excellent. Um, I would definitely like to go to that. Unfortunately, I think uh, my work schedule will not uh, work out with it. Um, and uh, just to let you know, I will post uh, a little blurb um, on the Facebook page giving you uh, this information as well. So um, at Amherst College on Wednesday the 31st at 7.30, in the Pano Room, which is the lecture hall in the Beniski Earth Sciences Building, visiting scholar Paul E. Olson will give a talk entitled The Geological Orrery, Using Earth's Geological Record to Map the Chaotic Evolution of the Solar System. On Wednesday, the 7th of February at 7 p.m., uh, at Broadside Books in downtown Northampton, there will be a book signing for Science for the People. Uh, Science for the People was an organization uh, in the uh, 50s and uh, 60s, maybe into the 70s, um, that brought together scientists, teachers, and students to practice socially and economically just science. Uh, and so the book looks at their assessment of a range of topics topics using primary documentation uh, set in a historical framework. And of course, Nerd Night is coming up again soon. Uh, this month, it will be on the 12th of February. Uh, and neither talk is particularly science-based, uh, but they do sound interesting. And uh, Nerd Night is a friend of the station and the show. So uh, there will be a talk on heist movies and what we can learn about them or from them, I should say, um, and a discussion of how social media and for instance, the phenomenon of ask me anything uh, can go mm, perhaps not as well as one might hope or even rather horribly wrong. Um, so yeah, uh, that is the things that I could find this week. Um, if you know of anything and you want to let me know, you can email uh, evidencebasedradio at gmail.com. Um, you can do that with any questions or comments. And um, I'm always willing to listen. And uh, if something interesting is brought to my attention, I might even talk about it on the air. Okay, so that's it for this week. And now I want to move on to a pretty 
awesome anniversary, which we technically just missed. It was yesterday, but I still wanted to talk about it because it's a really cool thing. So yesterday marked the anniversary of the arrival of the Opportunity Lander on the surface of Mars. So that was back in January 25th, 2004. Now, the original plan for Opportunity was for a 90-day mission, and it is still going strong 14 years later, or 4,534 days past its warranty, uh, as noted on the NASA mission page. I really like that. They have a running tally of how many days past the warranty uh, it is still working. Um And so it's traveled over 28 miles along the surface of the red planet, which doesn't sound like a whole lot until you realize that it moves at about a couple of inches uh, a minute, maybe a foot or two an hour. I'm not sure exactly how that uh, that works out, but um, I know they they crawl very slowly. Um, So 28 miles is a lot for something that goes very slowly. Um, You know, I think it would get easily lapped by uh, a tortoise. (laughs) So um, yeah, so it's going pretty slow. And uh, it is currently exploring uh, Perseverance Valley on the west rim of the Endeavor Crater. Uh, And so interestingly, it turns out that dust storms uh, in the Mars winter are actually good for the rover. Uh, apparently, the dust helps scrub it off because um, if you've seen pictures of the rover at various times, it does get really dusty. But apparently, when dust storms come through, you know, there's enough wind that it cleans off the solar panels. So uh, they were saying that they're, uh, they've gotten some better output on the solar panels uh, in recent days because there was one of those... Um, Uh, dust storms. So that's pretty cool. Now its companion spirit, unfortunately became inoperable back in 2010. Uh, NASA officially gave up on it in the summer of 2011. Uh, But uh, opportunity is, it doesn't seem to have any, uh, doesn't show any signs that it is going to break down anytime soon. Of course, anything can happen. Uh, It is very far away, uh, not as far away as some other uh, missions, but Mars is pretty darn far away uh, in human terms. Um, If we think about 28 miles, that's about, uh, you know, a sliver of the distance from the Earth to the from the Earth to Mars. Okay, so. Now, I promised I was going to talk about this last week, and I wanted to because it's interesting. Um, So let us turn now to a modern-day bird because we talked about ancient uh, bird-like dinosaurs last week. Uh, And so I wanted to talk about the turkey vulture. Now, obviously, the turkey vulture is not necessarily the most beautiful of birds. Um, it will, it was definitely not on the short list for uh, the national bird of the country or probably of any state. Uh, it would never win a beauty contest, but it actually has a pretty impressive superpower. And so turkey vultures have an amazing sense of smell, which isn't, you know, particularly surprising given the fact that they're carrion eaters. Um, But 
most raptors, which is what um, vultures are, are actually more sight-based than smell-based. And so it turns out that they have one of the most finely attuned senses of smells, um, sense of smells among bird species, which has almost certainly helped them to become the most abundant of the 23 vulture species worldwide. And so a new study by Gary Graves, a Smithsonian Institution researcher, and his colleagues is the first study to offer definitive proof that these birds are number one when it comes to navigating to a meal using only their sense of smell. Now, I think we've talked about vultures before. Um, I'm almost certain we have. Uh, and about how, despite not being the most beautiful of birds, again, not going to lie, uh, <laughs> they play an extremely important role in the world's ecology. And so I I actually specifically think that uh, we've talked before about the unfortunate object lesson that happened in India and Pakistan. And so about a decade ago, populations of vultures were decimated. Um, there ended up being a drug that was being given to uh, livestock and somehow that got into the vultures food web and it just killed them. Um, and they died in huge numbers. And unfortunately, into the breach left by the birds, because the old uh, saw that nature abhors a vacuum, uh, stepped in wild dogs or feral dogs. Now, this may not sound bad at first, because, you know, if you've got another carrion eater coming along, then that sounds reasonable. However, it came with an accompanying explosion in cases of rabies, because these are dogs that they're mammals, and so they can carry rabies, whereas a vulture cannot carry rabies because rabies only occurs in um, mammals. And so some 30,000 Indians die of rabies each year. And most researchers believe that this is largely caused by the loss of vultures and the subsequent rise of feral dogs. Now, getting back to the vultures, uh, again, though raptors, turkey vultures do not appear to be primarily visual in their foraging. And so that is unlike the larger black vulture. However, this has become somewhat controversial, or it has been somewhat controversial since the days of John James Audubon. So people have been wondering about this for a long time. And so according to Graves, in the 1960s, Kenneth Stager, a senior curator of ornithology at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County, made a breakthrough. He found through anatomical studies that the turkey vulture featured an extremely large olfactory bulb, which, as you may guess, uh, this is the area of the brain that decodes information about smells. However, no one was actually able to prove at the time that this led directly to them having a greater sense of smell than other birds. Now, because the birds are protected, uh, such proof became harder to obtain uh, as it requires the examination of fresh brain materials. Um, and so because we recognize the importance of these 
uh, vultures. We, uh, as a country, do not allow people to just shoot them without special permits and without really talking to people. However, in 2012, Graves was lucky enough to hear about a legal culling operation that was being carried out by the Department of Agriculture at the Nashville airport. Taking advantage of the opportunity, he and his several colleagues packed up a van and set up a mobile laboratory in a warehouse near the airport in order to dissect the animals and study their brains. We were there to receive the corpses that ordinarily would be disposed of, says Graves. For five days they worked, removing brains and preserving the heads of the birds in formaldehyde so that they could be added to the Smithsonian's collection for study in the future. Their study, published online in Scientific Reports last month, is based on hundreds of slices of brain that they were able to preserve and fix for microscopic study. They found that on average, the olfactory bulb is four times that of the black vulture, which has actually a significantly larger brain overall. And compared with 143 bird species, it is significantly larger relative to overall brain volume. The turkey vultures also have twice as many mitral cells, which help transmit data about smells to the brain and are considered a measure for an animal's sense of smell. And so they have twice as many as the black vulture. In absolute numbers, the turkey vulture has more mitral cells than any other species measured, the authors noted. Uh, They conducted comparisons comparison studies against 32 species of 10 different avian orders. Uh, this was an important study because there were there was previously no published data on the number of mitral cells in avian olfactory bulbs. And so interestingly, they found that despite their differences in olfactory prowess, turkey vultures have very similar visual ability to that of black vultures. So even though they have a overdeveloped sense of smell, they haven't lost any of their visual acuity. They suspect that developing the advanced sense of smell allowed the turkey vulture to exploit a different niche from the black vulture. And so it turns out that the birds can smell very dilute plumes of volatile gases in the air column, hundreds of feet above the ground, Graves notes, adding that they circle around like bloodhounds to seek out or to seek the source of the odor. Uh, And I'm sure that we have almost all seen uh, turkey vultures wheeling in the air above uh, something, usually, uh, hopefully off in the distance, so we don't know what that thing is. Um, But yeah. (laughs) And so... um, In addition, being able to find food in closed canopy forests and jungles, unlike other vultures, has allowed them to have a more widespread, uh, to become the most widespread vulture species in the world. There are an estimated 18 million turkey vultures around the globe, according to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And so Graves hopes to continue studying this superpower that makes these birds unique. He'd like to look at the genome to see if there are differences from other birds, humans, or other mammals. He also hopes to determine just what chemicals in the odor are those that particularly attract the birds. 
And so it's important that we continue to study these birds because they are a vital part of our ecosystem. And we have seen uh, very, very um, frankly, how losing them can affect an ecosystem. And of course, they are a familiar site in Massachusetts. So they're definitely around here. Uh, and in fact, there was one day uh, that I was standing at the bus stop near my home. Um, and there's a house nearby. And on top of it were a couple of uh, turkey vultures. And at first I didn't realize what I was seeing. And I realized how huge they are because they're really big. Um, and they're also really interesting looking. Uh, they're definitely one of those birds where there are certain birds where I say, if you ever want to if you ever doubt that birds are descended from dinosaurs, just look at, you know, a turkey or a turkey vulture or um, there's some other birds. And these are definitely one of those ones that like, oh, yeah, that that's a feathered dinosaur. Absolutely. Um, and again, not not the most beautiful, but beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And honestly, uh, these birds are a lot more important than some of the very pretty birds uh, in terms of ecosystem uh, maintenance. And so they're a great ob object lesson in uh, not judging a book by its cover. <laughs> okay, so let us move on now to once again uh, talk about the flu. And I realize that I sound like a broken record, but this is a new study and um, I do want to talk about it because I do think it's important to keep reminding people that the flu is not just something to uh, think you can you know, get and not have to worry about uh, that it is a very serious condition that can have other consequences that you might not even think about. And so a new study suggests that people over 35 who have a confirmed case of influenza are at an increased risk of having a heart attack in the weeks after coming down with the virus. Now, the new study published in the New England Journal of Medicine is the first to link heart attacks to laboratory confirmed cases of the flu. Now, this isn't a new concept. However, due to the fact that many people who come down with the, with mild cases of the flu never bother to come in and see a doctor, and even those who see a doctor are often diagnosed purely from symptoms, it did not have clinical support until now. Now we can say that this is influenza without a question that is associated with MI, said Dr. Jeffrey Kwong of Public Health Ontario and the Institute for Clinical Evaluative Sciences in Toronto. Now, uh, by the way, MI stands for myocardial infarction, uh, which is the clinical term for a heart attack. And so the researchers looked at health records for Ontario in order to match patients who had both a laboratory-confirmed diagnosis of influenza and a heart attack within one year on either side of the diagnosis. And so they looked at patients over the age of 35 who were confirmed to have flu between May 1st, 2009 and May 31st, 2014. They found approximately 19,000 people who had tested positive for the flu. They then looked more closely at the week after the flu diagnosis and compared the number of heart attacks during that seven-day period to those of the rest of the two-year period. 
they found that 332 people who ended up in hospital with more, one or more heart attacks. Of the 364 hospitalizations associated with the heart attacks, they found that most were spread along the timeline. However, 20 were clustered in that week after the flu diagnosis. And so this suggests the flu did indeed raise the risk of a heart attack. Now, um, Kwong notes that the reason they kept saying for people over 35 is that heart attacks are very rare in people under 35. So those would have been outliers. Um, and so they wanted to focus on that group that is the most common to have heart attacks. And so uh, it turns out that the increased risk was sixfold. This means that patients were six times more likely to have a heart attack during the week after being diagnosed with the flu than at any other point along the timeline. Now, again, we have to talk about relative versus uh, relative risk versus absolute risk. So, um, you know, this is just about the fact that for the people who were going to have a heart attack, that it you had an increased risk if you came down with flu. Um, that doesn't mean that if you are perfectly 100% healthy and you get the flu, that doesn't say anything about whether or not you're actually going to have a heart attack based on this. Um, so there's that important caveat between relative risk, which is what this is. You have a relatively larger risk during this one part of this whole than a absolute risk, which is that if you do this thing, you absolutely will have a higher risk of having this other outcome. And um, yeah, how we talk about risk is always really uh, confusing to people. And I think that a lot of times there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding around how we talk about risk. So I try and be as clear about it as possible. Okay, so uh, that is definitely a worrying statistic. But I do want to point out that there are several limitations to the study. So for instance, the fact uh, already mentioned that many more people come down with the flu than end up with an official laboratory diagnosis. And so it may be that this research applies only to those who are sick enough to land in hospital where the virus can be confirmed. And so there remains no way to truly test the theory on a population level, given the nebulous nature of the total population of infected people at any given time. So there's plenty of people out there right now who have the flu, who don't know they have the flu, will not see someone, and therefore, if they had a heart attack, it would not be uh, necessarily caught that they had had the flu because they might only think it was a cold and not even bother to tell the physician. And so, um, and in addition, even if they did tell the physician, the physician might not have bothered running a test because they're busy dealing with the heart attack. <laughs> um, I suppose I shouldn't laugh about that. Um, and so, um, yeah. So unfortunately, this is one of those things where we can't ever say for certain anything uh, for a population level uh, that we can't say, for instance, that this absolutely applies to a population level. We can say that for this certain set of people, these seem to be the criteria that um, are the risk factors apply to. Uh, but again, uh, it is another great reason to get the flu shot, 
each year uh, and to encourage those around you to do the same. And in fact, um, I didn't get to read the whole thing, but uh, apparently there is some research to suggest that it is important to continue uh, to get an annual flu shot that as you uh, go with having gotten a shot every year, apparently your ability to fight off the flu is actually increased by that uh, cumulative effect of getting the flu shot every single year. Um, So again, very important to get the flu shot. Uh, Okay, so next I wanted to talk for just a minute about the report that... uh, some researchers in China have cloned a monkey. Uh, so two long-tailed macaques named Zhang Zhang and Hua Hua uh, were cloned using the technique pioneered by the creators of Dolly the Sheep. And this is according to a new paper in the journal Cell. They were cloned from fetal cells uh, in a petri dish at the Chinese Academy of Sciences in Shanghai. Now, this isn't really that huge of a breakthrough, um, but it is the first time that primates have been successfully cloned. Um, So Kyung Sun, uh, director of the Primate Research Facility at the Chinese Academy of Sciences Institute for Neuroscience, and his colleagues took cells from an aborted female monkey fetus. Um, And so they used those cells to create 149 embryos, of which 79 survived long enough to be transferred into surrogate mothers. Um, And so if you don't know that much about in vitro fertilization, a lot of times they implant many embryos because they assume that only one or two at most are going to implant. And that's how you get people who end up with triplets and quadruplets and you know, multiple babies because, oops, a bunch of them actually do implant every once in a while. Um, And so four actually successfully implanted, um, but two of them um, subsequently were miscarried. Uh, And so the researchers state that they uh, did use international guidelines for animal research as set by the NIH, um, but, uh, you know, Doing this sort of research is always uh, a little bit uh, sketchy when it comes to the morals and ethics, Uh, but they suggest that such cloned monkeys could be used for animal research again. Um, However, uh, at least here in the United States, researchers are actually trying to decrease the amount of testing done on primates, uh, which is a very good thing, um, especially in medical research. And so um, the, they uh, argue, though, that if used in research, the clones could be manipulated uh, before being born to create genetically unique strains. Uh, and so, for instance, that's what happens with mice is that a lot of mice are a genetically unique strain that is specifically uh, bred or cloned for a specific set of um, research questions. Um, And so there are specific mouse lines that uh, researchers will um, order based on what they're looking at, um, whether or not those mice will be uh, useful for looking at those questions. 
Now, the scientists did try to use cells from an adult monkey, uh, but that was unsuccessful, and that's why they decided to go with fetal cells. Um, because basically the longer a cell has been uh, part of an adult, the harder it is to revert it back to being a stem cell. And um, one of the big things, obviously, is that this is far away from researchers being able to clone, clone humans. Uh, I have to say that I suspect that there isn't really any reason to uh, believe that the process of cloning a human would be substantially different. Um, however, I think it really comes down to the ethical and moral aspects, um, which would make this kind of work extremely difficult, uh, not only to start with getting um, the materials needed, but also to um, have subjects who would be willing to be surrogates. Um, and just the whole thing is very... Um, ethically fraught. <laughs> um, I am not uh, of the opinion that we should be working on this anytime soon. Um, I am not uh, a, I do not welcome our clone overlords. <laughs> um, but these monkeys definitely seem healthy and happy and are rather cute, though in a sort of uncanny valley kind of way. Um, and hopefully they will live full and healthy lives. Um, I'm very hopeful of that. Um, so yeah. Okay, let's take a break after that um, and do some PSAs and uh, some show promos. And we're going to talk, come back and talk about uh, the announcement that the Eastern Cougar is extinct and how that might not be as terrible as it sounds. So hang on for just a moment. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Sassy! Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, Sassy! <coughs> you will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? <coughs> Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, Sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, Women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. When you get home at night and switch on the lights, do you feel good about the source of your electricity? Did you know that you can choose to power your home with 100% local, clean electricity? You have the power to say no to the standard mix of polluters like natural gas, coal, and oil. Make the switch to clean electricity produced right here in New England. It's easy. Sign up for New England Wind or New England Green Start 
without any contracts or commitments. Just go to www.massenergy.org forward slash CET. You don't let your kids play in the toilet. That's what it's like when pet owners don't pick up pet waste. Irrigation and stormwater can carry this pollutant to storm drains and retention areas where our children play. Do the right thing. For yourself and your community, pick up after your pet. Bag it and properly dispose of it in the trash. Remember, only rain in the storm drain. Brought to you by Stormwater Outreach for regional municipalities. Visit storm at www.azstorm.org. Looking for an international experience but unable to travel? Consider hosting an adult international student studying English. Maybe from the Congo, Iran, Tibet, Saudi Arabia, Spain, Uganda, Tunisia, India, or Iraq. We need friendly hosts interested in a true cross-cultural interchange, fluent in English, and living within a 15-minute walk or convenient bus ride to downtown Northampton. Join ILI's nonprofit effort to create language and cultural immersion experiences for our students. A stipend offsets costs. For more details, go to www.ili.edu or email amy at ili.edu. We're the International Language Institute of Massachusetts in downtown Northampton. Never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. The Lilly Library is filled with adventure and wonder for kids and adults of all ages. Lilly Library in downtown Florence lends books and movies to everyone. They offer free parking, free Wi-Fi, and two-hour sessions on internet-connected computers. They also offer extensive programs for children, including story hours, clubs, and activities for teens, as well as adult programs. The library is open Tuesday and Thursday evenings, Saturdays and Sundays. Find out more at lilylibrary.org. You are listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. I'm Mayor David Narkowitz, and I support Northampton's community radio station. Okay, we are back. And as promised, uh, we are going to talk about cougars. Now, uh, you may have heard the, that there was an official announcement by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, declaring finally that the eastern cougar is extinct. Now, again, while this might seem like a blow to biodiversity, it's actually uh, potentially counterintuitively uh, and lots of other <laughs> uh Adjectives or adverbs? I don't remember offhand. I think adjectives. Uh, most likely a boon to efforts to repopulate the eastern half of the country with transplants from the west. So it turns out that there is good evidence to suggest that eastern cougars weren't actually ever a distinct subspecies, but rather a distinct population of genetically very similar animals to those still thriving in the West and even to those uh, in South America. Um, so there is 
pretty much uh, some very good evidence that they're all very genetically similar and that they haven't actually diverged from one another um, pretty much at all. Uh, and so the large cats uh, in the east were wiped out actually mainly by the loss of their prey species, uh, which was the Virginia white-tailed deer during the 19th century. Now, of course, you might think, what? <laughs> there are white-tailed deers everywhere. Um, but we, uh, as a people, not uh, us necessarily, but uh, uh, New Englanders and those in the East really managed to uh, do in a large population of white-tailed deer in the 19th century. And they've really only recovered uh, in the last, uh, you know, 30 or 40 years. Uh, there are... The last state, I think, was Connecticut to reopen hunting, and that was only in the 70s. So um, even though you basically can't walk 10 feet without tripping over a white-tailed deer in some parts of uh, the state these days, they were once very scarce, and that meant uh, that the cougars didn't have anything to eat other than livestock, which is, of course, where... Uh, the other problem came with people hunting the cats, uh, either for sport or because they were a threat to livestock. Now, in the West, large pockets of more rural land allowed cougars to continue to mainly hunt mule deer and elk. And so, in addition, the loss of wolf populations and the loss of large numbers of grizzly bears in those same areas uh, most likely helped them to maintain a hold because they weren't in direct competition with other large predators for those uh, deer populations. And uh, the mule deer populations have exploded, just like the whitetails here in the east, and uh, so too has the population of western pumas um, or cougars. Again, um, or I should say, it, the terms are interchangeable. Um, and so uh, this is, of course, actually fairly good news. Um, I mean, occasionally there is an incident, unfortunately, because... Uh, cougars and humans don't always mix well. Uh, so especially in uh, California, in the Los Angeles area, um, there are definitely encounters with cougars that um, are unfortunately very dangerous because they are a very dangerous animal. But they are also, uh, just like a lot of other apex predators, an important part of the ecosystem's web. And... Um, so Western Pumas actually have already been spotted throughout the East. Uh, so there have been uh, far traveling animals, individuals. Uh, one was unfortunately hit by a car in Connecticut um, several years ago. Uh, there have been sightings in Maine um, and all along the Eastern seaboard. And um so that basically uh, suggests to conservationists that it should be relatively easy to repopulate eastern areas with transplanted western cougars, especially in places like the Adirondacks and the White Mountains. And uh, so again, because there is no longer a need to worry about uh, keeping the western uh, cougar out of 
what could still have possibly been Eastern Cougar territory, this actually opens up avenues for us to be able to uh, bring in animals and reestablish reestablish populations. Now, uh, so uh, Michael Robinson, a conservation advocate at the Center for Biological Diversity, uh, said in a statement that Eastern states need large carnivores like cougars to keep the wild food web healthy. They would curb deer overpopulation and tick-borne diseases that threaten human health. So again, it's kind of like the vultures. Uh, There is a very important part of the food web that these animals inhabit. And even though uh, we may occasionally have encounters with them that don't go well, uh, we have that with grizzly bears, we have that with wolves, not so much wolves. Um, Wolves get a very bad rap. Um, Wolves very, very rarely attack humans. Um, Bears, obviously, a little more often, uh, but we've already got a substantial population of of uh, brown bears in, uh, or black bears, I should say, black bears in uh, the area all up and down the eastern seaboard. And uh, so having pumas wouldn't be that much of a difference as far as large, uh, potentially dangerous animals. Um, So let's move on now uh, to a weird discovery. Uh, There's a couple of vaguely connected, uh, just in topic, but, uh, not in, uh, anatomy necessarily, uh, things that I wanted to talk about concerning, uh, human senses. So researchers at the University of Southern California, Dornsife, uh, College of Letters, Arts, and Sciences have discovered a new kind of ion channel that is important in two very different places, the inner ear, and the tongue. And so these ion channels let protons into cells which otherwise cannot cross cell membranes. And uh, so protons control whether a solution is acidic or basic, uh, basically controlling the uh, pH of a substance. And so previous studies have found that a gene that encodes ion channels that let protons leave the cell, uh, but had not identified the gene or genes that encode for ion channels that allow protons into the cell. And so the researchers were actually studying sour taste, and they have found that the otoporin family of genes do just that. And so publishing in the journal Science, the group led by Professor of Biological Sciences Emily Lyman, uh, discovered that the gene Oteparin-1, or OTOP-1, encodes a proton channel. This goes some way to explaining why mutations in this particular gene in mice uh, cause them to lack balance. Uh, And so researchers refer to such mice as tilted. And we'll come back to why that is um, in a second. So it turns out that sour taste is the tongue's reaction to acidic substances. Think citric acid in citrus fruits, for instance. And therefore, it's not particularly surprising that it would be associated with genes that code for ion channels that allow protons into cells. And in fact, the researchers had already discovered a specialized proton channel for this purpose in the cell membrane of taste cells eight years ago, but 
the gene encoding and structural properties had not yet been discovered at that time. And so the lab used a technique called RNA-seq, which is RNA sequencing, uh, to hunt for the genes that specifically express in sour taste cells versus those that express in other types of taste cells. Grad student Yu Xiang Tu tested each potential gene one by one until he discovered a gene that, when inserted into cells without proton channels, allowed the cell to begin producing the channels. Now, he had continued to do this over and over again until Lyman was ready to tell him to give up. When Yu Xiang called me into the lab and showed me the Opterin data, I could not believe we had finally found it, Lyman said. We had been looking for so many years. And so it turns out that there are three uh, optogenes, one, two, and three, uh, you know, very uh, imaginatively named. Uh, And so they are all involved in producing uniquely structured ion channels, which uh, all involve the movement of protons. Now, they have distinctive distribution patterns in various systems of the body, including the tongue, ear, eye, nerves, reproductive organs, and digestive tract. Now, coming back to the inner ear and why this is uh, not surprising that it affects the mice, uh, in the inner ear, OTUP1 aids in the creation and function of autoconia, which are calcium carbonate crystals that allow for sensing gravity and acceleration. And so the researchers suspect that the role OTAP1 has in this process is related to the maintenance of a specific pH, and that tilted mice may have a pH level that does not allow for crystal formation. We never in a million years expected that the molecule that that we were looking for in taste cells would also be found in the vestibular system, Lyman said. This highlights the power of basic or fundamental research. And so uh, while not yet proven, they suspect that OTOP1 is involved in sensing acids on the tongue to alert the body to sour tastes. Now, earlier research by Lyman and others have shown that that sour taste perception is actually more complicated than just uh, being able to sense the uh, pH of the acid. And so not only does the strength of the acid count, but there are also potassium channels that interact with the substance to increase the way sour is detected. And so it turns out that the concentration of the acid is also important. So a weak but concentrated substance can taste more sour than a strong but dilute acid. Taste represents a fairly direct link between sensation and perception, so it's an interesting window into how our body and mind are connected, Lyman said. The mechanisms that we discovered not only explain why weak acids taste more sour than strong acids, but it may also explain how we can detect relatively low concentrations of protons because it predicts predicts that there would be an amplification of the initial signal. So very interesting uh, that taste is rather uh, more complicated than you might think. Okay, and so our second story about this weird sort of coincidence is a new study that finds that our eye movements also move our eardrums. So a team of researchers led by neurobiologist Jennifer Groh at Duke University have published a new paper uh, 
about this as part of their investigation into how the brain is able to coordinate the senses of vision and hearing. Our brains would like to match up what we see and what we hear according to where these stimuli are coming from, but the visual system and the auditory system figure out where stimuli are located in two completely different ways, notes grow. Now, 16 subjects were outfitted with tiny microphones in their ears, which would be able to catch any vibrations coming from the eardrum. They were then placed in a darkened room and asked to follow LED lights as they shifted in a pattern. Sometimes the lights would be accompanied by sound and sometimes not. They found that the eardrums move even in the absence of sound in conjunction with eye movement. It turns out that the that when the eyes move to one side, the eardrums bulge to the other side, vibrate for a few oscillations, and then stop shortly after the eye movement. Now, the vibrations are actually caused by the brain producing movements in the small bones and hairs of the inner ear. The fact that these eardrum movements are encoding spatial information about eye movements means that they may be useful for helping our brain merge visual and auditory space, said first co-author of the paper, Duke University doctoral student David Murphy. It could also signify a marker of a healthy interaction between the auditory and visual systems. Now, the findings suggest that this integration of senses of sense signals occurs very early in the process of actually making sense of those signals. And so they hope to, to next study uh, if the same vibrations occur for up-down motions in the eyes and to, to discover um, more about how and why this interaction actually happens. Okay, so let's move on now and talk about another favorite subject around here, the ocean. Uh, And this is sort of indirectly about the ocean, I have to admit. Uh, But I do obviously want to talk a little bit about uh, the fact that there is so much more out in the ocean than we have any idea about. Um, And much like the rainforest, there are probably things in the ocean that are going extinct right now uh, that we really wish we hadn't uh, helped go extinct and that we will never know about. Um, And uh, I still... It still baffles me why people aren't out there exploring more and really understanding um, how amazing the ocean is and how important it is to us and really finding out amazing and interesting things. Um, I know it's difficult to do, but still, um, you know, we continue to go into space, but we don't explore our own oceans. Ah, But at least there are some. Um, I definitely always love when... um, one of the deep diving uh, rover expeditions has a new video on YouTube of some interesting thing that they've found. Um, It's definitely one of my uh, favorite things to find in my YouTube uh, subscription queue. But anyways, uh, some of these discoveries aren't actually that hard to locate as long as you know where to look and how to look. So Martin Poles, an environmental microbiologist from MIT and his team, along with researchers at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York, have discovered in ocean water collected off the coast of Massachusetts a new family of viruses. 
And what's more, they don't think that they're necessarily confined to the ocean. They suspect and have uh, some pretty good proof uh, that they might be in places potentially all over the earth, including inside humans and other animals. Now, of course, one might ask, how have we missed seeing them before? Well, it turns out they can't actually be detected by standard lab tests. So Poles and his team analyzed three months worth of samples of coastal ocean waters. What they found was that in addition to the countless regular double-stranded DNA or DSDNA viruses, um, of which most are quote-unquote tailed, they also found a bunch of DSDNA viruses that are tailless. And so the researchers found 200 viruses infecting a culture of Vibrionacea, a family of marine bacteria, and of them, 18 were identified as new non-tailed DSDNA viruses. Now, they've called the new family of bacteria of bacteria Autolycaviridia, after Autolycos, a trickster character from Greek mythology who was said to be hard to catch. And it turns out that they might just be a missing clue to a puzzle in virus evolution. They seem to be members of an ancient viral lineage identifiable by particular kinds of capsids, which is the protein shell that encases the DNA of the virus. And so part of the interesting thing about this is that we knew that those sorts of viruses had infected animals and single-celled organisms, but had not had direct evidence that they uh, were able to infect bacteria. And so the genomes of these new viruses are actually uh, very short compared to a typical tailed virus. Uh, they generally have only about 10,000 base pairs versus the 40 to 50,000 for tailed viruses. But it seems that they do a lot with that small genome. Uh, they seem to be very successful at infecting a wide range of bacteria, whereas other viruses tend to be much more specialized. The researchers suspect that they may actually be much more important to the regulation of bacterial life, especially within the ocean, than had been known previously. And so of, ov of over 300 strains of Vibrionaceae, vibrio uh, which were exposed to the virus family, uh, it turns out that the results were pretty shocking. They caused about 40% of the bacterial killing observed, despite comprising just 10% of the viruses that we isolated, explained one of the team, uh, microbiologist Labusha Kelly. And remember that they are not actually isolated in the ocean. Uh, the team took the sequenced DNA genomes and looked for similar genomes in DNA databases. We found related viral sequences in the human gut microbiome, Kelly said, but we don't yet know how they influence microbial communities in the gut or how important they are for health. And so uh, these findings reported in the, in the journal Nature uh, suggest that microbiologists might need to look at new methods for detecting these sorts of viruses, and they might even find something else new out there. Okay, that is all the time we have for tonight. I will uh, hopefully be back next week um, as usual, and we will talk about more science. Have a great night. 
This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.